Hello everyone and welcome to my digital talk. The topic today is Global Macro Outlook 2020 and I have a very special guest today. With me, uh, his name is Sune Sorensen. Sune Sorensen is the founder of Librarium Associates, which is an independent research company focusing on global macro and geopolitical monitoring and analysis. The company is committed to delivering distinctive, distinctive insights on global trends, enabling partners and clients to make informed decisions in a changeable world under great uncertainty. And today we are going to address all of these uncertainties uh, as well as relevant global trends. But before I start, I would like to point to one very interesting product that the Libra Library Librarium Associates is offering, which is a special report that is available to everyone who is interested. Um, you can go to the webpage, which is www.librariuminsights.com, and you can actually inquire the report. Now, Sune, before we start with our conversation, tell us something about this report. All right. Well, good afternoon, good morning, depending on where people are. Um, yes, great to be here with you. Um, so the report is, uh, well, the ambition is for it to be quarterly. I'm running a little bit long on, on this particular one. Um, but it is basically one report we put out for, uh, to everyone, so it's publicly available. Um, we like to do that because you get some feedback. It's a good process, personally. I enjoy the process of actually making the uh, the report. Um, so it's called Navigantium, which basically is Latin for navigators. Um, it's the idea came from really a book from 1600s, which was about you know travelers around the world and their object of their observations as they traveled around, um, and that's kind of what we try and do. So my approach to geopolitics, macro, and my investment work is very much one where we try and ask big questions, and then we go off and try and explore, looking for answers um, through reading, studying, conversations, um, and that's basically the approach of it. So it's not so much that we think you're going to get maybe the final answer to anything. It's maybe more about getting a sense of things, which is probably one of the things that when you read history, uh, you understand that there's no exact answers to many things. It's very complex, and, and kind of the human experience is, is one of uh, complexity and sometimes a bit messy, but you know you can get a sense of trends, you can get a sense of how things develop, um, and there's some lessons in that that can be useful to try and, and kind of navigate that path forward. Um, and that's the basic of the work. I think I would add another thing is, I think there's a tendency in, in the human mind, but also more broadly when you look at um, specifically things like geopolitics or you know, macro, is to kind of think very um, vertically. So you have these sort of silos, you know, whether it's, uh, let's say, a sector or country or region or some kind of subject, and then you try and basically have this very deep uh, pile of knowledge underneath it. I find that that is can certainly be useful and it's a good foundation. Um, but where the real uh, in, where the real insights are developed is really when you can go horizontally, so you can make those connections uh, across a broad spectrum of countries, systems. Uh, if it's in in finance, more maybe in industries, and that's really what I try and focus on. So when maybe some of the questions we will cover today, my approach might be a little bit different. Where I know there is a tendency, which is natural, to kind of say I'm focused on this or this is the US, this is China, this is the BRICS or whatever it is that you're looking at. I kind of like to look at it much more. Uh, 
and what are the different aspects within those societies and where are the overlaps and where are the connections that are much broader than let's say man-made borders so that's a little bit on the kind of background of my work and what we do and again anyone who wants to report more than happy to send it out and uh, and obviously answer i like to have people come back with feedback and questions so let's try and get to that and uh, i have to stress uh, that uh I feel very honored to have contributed to one of your reports uh, yep. covering uh, the systemic rivalry between the United States and China, the Dragon Bear. All of these issues will be part of our digital talk, but one by one. Now, as you have outlined, uh, obviously we are going to focus on a little bit different perspective. That is, uh, as you say, uh, in your um, in your uh, digital talks, uh, and I also have stressed uh, this uh, throughout uh, the last uh, months, uh, it's a kind of a 10,000 feet perspective, a helicopter view on the general picture, instead of looking at each individual tree, right? And this is what we are going to try to do in the next uh, 60 minutes, to um, offer a kind of a, a global picture and to focus on global macro uh, trends and perspectives. Now, we are still in the middle of a COVID-19 virus outbreak. No European country has been spared from it. Uh, the same applies to all other parts of the world. Um, so my first question to you is related, of course, to COVID-19 and more specifically, to the post-COVID-19 economic, monetary, and financial repercussions for the global system, for this forest that we want to look at. So what is your assessment on that? Well, number one, obviously, uh, I'm not a doctor. Or I have no understanding of biology, so I'm not here to make any kind of comments on that aspect. I'm sure you can go on Twitter and find some experts there. But uh, <laughs> the, um, obviously, from my perspective, it has been we came into this year. So if you take a step back and, and again, take a little bit of a perspective on it, we came into it from 2019 really feeling that in terms of financial markets, that was a lot of build up. We had, you know, covenant light loans up to here um we have you know many issues in the system that felt like you were getting into into some from a financial perspective some uh, some concerning areas high valuations across asset classes we had some big questions about debt viability we had a slowing economy before any of this happened so coming into the end of last year um, we had concern about 2020 as, as a year uh, where we felt there might be some discontinuities in terms of economics um, and in financial markets um, I think that was uh, something I've been kind of thinking about and monitoring for a while. I think there's a bit of a, a shift in psychology maybe in the last year or so where there was maybe different constituencies in, in the financial markets, in, in policymakers, in terms of governance within different regions, um, where there was kind of a feeling that there was a need for change, that there was an unease about the path we were on. We saw that very much in the politics in the last three or four years, I would say. Um, and I was kind of thinking, you know, we're looking maybe for a trigger that is kind of we build up a system that is perhaps moved into an area where we build up um, some something that is maybe not sustainable or viable, whether that's in our financial system or whether that's in our economic models um, and in terms of the geopolitical, uh, can we say, um, so how things are stacked up in that space. We, we had kind of, let's say, maybe 20, 30 years from kind of the phasing out of the Cold War to the US really coming into its own for a period. And then we had this big boost of the globalization that came on the back of that. 
uh, if you call it globalization, I, I would describe it maybe more in details as in that it was a free flow of, of capital, of trade, of people, ideas, uh, technology. Um, and that kind of led to some, some powerful growth, some developments of industry. We've seen the internet, the switch to the digital reality. It's been well on the way for a couple of decades now. Um, but in some parts of industry, for example, specifically in the West, we have probably come into what are called the fin branches of the innovation tree. So if the roots were semiconductors and the internet, um, then we kind of build on top of that. In the beginning, we build this powerful oak tree which is you know yielded a lot of, of shade for us and some good uh, some good fruit for us to, to nourish on but um, you know when you're out in the fin branches and be you know you see capital flowing to the 11th the uber of x y and z um, and you're kind of feeling like are we actually are we solving any issues uh, is capital allocated in the right places uh, or are we just thinking more short term is there anything new that's going to give us that next boost something we can build upon and my feeling coming into this year was that we we're probably running out both in terms of productivity in terms of the kind of um, the wind in the sails of the economic side i certainly felt the financial markets were fragile um, and then you were looking for kind of a trigger for it and then beginning of the year to step up to your question a little bit closer you know we had the australian fires we had the iranian u.s blow up and you could kind of feel that people were getting nervous i was kind of a scattering that people were looking for answers um and maybe that was certainly you know i always say watch out for people when they try to kind of take uh, what is concern and turn it into hysteria and maybe take that hysteria and turn it into politics and i think we've seen more and more of that and i was concerned about that i think then we obviously had the situation uh, from the beginning of the year in china and people were kind of uh, maybe distracted with the other aspects of it or maybe a sense of this is in china it has nothing to do with us um and maybe an underestimation of what to really do and also questions about what to actually do because in western the western world we haven't really had much of this uh, for a long time since let's say 1918 obviously there's been little you know around the ebola and, and other aspects sars in in asia but we hadn't really had it in our own communities up close and personal um and i think once it started coming into europe um, and people starting to realize that this was not contained in one place and there was a lot of uncertainty about what was actually the uh, what, what do it actually mean for us in terms of the first of all health and obviously after that what is the meaning in terms of the change to to daily life and the economy and, and from there so i think there's a realization that pandemics is a very scary thing <laughs> and uh, it is probably our achilles heel as a globally integrated uh, sort of entity or society um i think that there was um at national levels, certainly not a well-prepared system for it. Our system was stretched out uh, to maximize profit, um, but maybe not so much for resiliency. Um, and we kind of got caught out in that and people kind of panicked a little bit, I felt, in many places in terms of policymakers feeling they had to do something without really maybe having all the information in front of them. And you can't really blame them because who can make decisions without information that are rational necessarily. Um, and then we kind of had a period of actually realizing as this kind of wave came from Asia in through Europe and to then North America, um, you know, what are the realities of this? What does it mean in terms of health? Who's being, you know, where's the mortality rates? You know, then you had all this wonderful blow up speculative uh, assessments of exactly what was and trying to kind of create models of certainty on something that was very uncertain and that perhaps probably fed to more uh, confusion uh, fear and, and and we saw that in financial markets we had you know the biggest drop since well from from a peak to a bottom since the uh, since the uh, great depression in 1930s and um, so there's been some real effects obviously then you shut down economies um that then takes out whole sectors of the industry of industry um you put people in their houses and 
you know, that have some real implications that are not speculative anymore. And that's perhaps where we can maybe start to actually see some real, some real bits of information or insights that may be useful. We can glean that um, and then maybe thinking about the path ahead. So that, you know, maybe that's a long answer to your question, but that's kind of my perspective mm -hmm. coming into the year and where we sit today. Mm -hmm. What I find very striking is that I'm observing stakeholders, decision makers in politics being disconnect, disconnected from economics and on the very same time stakeholders in economics being disconnected from politics. Now, putting this together, I see both being disconnected from cyclical and systemic processes and developments, not able to realize the big pictures to, to to get the big picture and speaking of systemic developments systemic events one of them of course is the systemic rivalry between the united states and china that has been already taking place prior to COVID 19. now you've mentioned some of the cyclical processes we were in fact already in a cycle of deglobalization for several years as a result of course of the great financial crisis as a result of economic um, and trade stagnation in the world with all countries developed and developing economies trying to somehow um, stimulate their economies produce some kind of economic growth and this systemic rivalry between the united states and china has been forgotten for some time during the COVID-19 um, virus outbreak in the United States and of course in Europe and is now being revived. How? By, of course, uh, certain statements and, um, you know, pointing to um, future tensions in the trade relations between the United States and China. Would you please elaborate uh, a little bit, how do you see this systemic rivalry? How do you think that this is going to impact the global affairs? And, um, well, uh, is it going to be accelerated by COVID-19? Um, what kind of outcome do you expect at least for the next, uh, let's say, uh, for the next uh, months uh, prior to the US elections? Okay, so actually I want to quote, um, I came across this writing by Mr. Snowden uh, in terms of, I think it's a good intro to what you kind of bring up there. So he writes basically in his book, Epidemics and Society from the Black Death to the Present. He writes, epidemic diseases are not random events that afflict societies capriciously and without warning. On the contrary, every society produces its own specific vulnerabilities. To study them is to understand that society's structure, its standard of living and its political priorities. So I found that it was very interesting because I think we actually seen that play out. So from kind of um, someone who observes different systems, different regions, I think it has been very interesting to look through the lens of how different regions have reacted. So we had the Chinese side, obviously, first. So there's obviously a lot of um, controversy about what took place initially. But if you go by just what is knowable to a certain degree, was obviously that this thing got underway. Perhaps there was maybe traditionally for Chinese society, uh, um, kind of a, a push to try and sweep it under the carpet locally. Uh, and then 
whatever happens after that, you had this major clamp down, you had the whole society being organized around dealing with this without, let's say, taking any prisoners, to be sort of quite frank in how they approached it initially. And they locked up, you know, 11 million people and, and, and very quickly got organized. The whole of society built hospitals in a couple of days and, you know, what have you. Then you look at Europe. First thing when it hit here, we kind of had that... Uh, everyone for themselves there was panic there was you know pointing fingers there was trying to figure it out there was kind of meetings by committee you know a lot of memorandums and not so much doing and then slowly things started coming together you know again in terms of systems europe perhaps had a, a strong health system so once we sort of stopped panicking and actually had some real conversation maybe brought in some of the experts around different areas and actually followed what they were instructing us that was you know relatively effective clamp down on this and on the economic side you know, you have obviously a safety net that is perhaps unrivaled by most other places besides maybe Canada and Australia and New Zealand. Um, so there was some safety in that. Um, then obviously we've seen the US, which had really, you know, political bipartisanship uh, deeply steeped into into the uh, culture right now. You had obviously a system where they have had the gig economy, where you had large parts of the population with very little safety net. Um, and... You know, you obviously have this inequality, which is a long-term trend that has been playing out both there and but also in other parts of the world. And when you saw it through the lens of the virus, it kind of basically enhanced all those, uh, back to Mr. Snowden's quote, it kind of enhanced that differentiations between them. So I think it's kind of an interesting kind of a, a scope to look through um, that at. So that brings us then to the your question about the Chinese, China and the U.S., so again, long trend. I mean, I think both in my writing and your writing, um, we kind of covered that um, there is obviously, I mean, I did a, a lengthy report with Dr. Malcolm Gren and a, a few other people back last year, which focused on China. And basically the exercise I tried to do was really based on questions I've had over a couple of years, which was really about for the last four decades, what has China essentially achieved? What have they been working on? What are their strategic objectives? Have they actually managed to achieve some of those things over a four decade period? Um, so we looked at technology, we looked at trade, we looked at the capital or financial system, uh, and we looked at the military. And the report took quite a while to put together and it was an interesting process. But I think some of my conclusions were really that the decoupling, the Chinese, you know, there's often when you do a system perspective, it's very easy to kind of, for a while, to have become complacent and then for a period to kind of be, oh, they're here, you know, they're competing with us in, in industries. They're not just, you know, producing our flip-flops and our plastic, plastic Christmas trees anymore. Uh, they're actually making technology. They're actually building out the military. They're actually building up a lot of wealth and then building infrastructure and then maybe getting ahead of us, leapfrogging in certain areas. Um, and they're obviously a huge place, so they're going to be consequential. So I think that that trend has been there for a while. It, China has been decoupling in the sense that they were looking for self-sufficiency. So initially, that's in energy, that's in food and water. The basics that if you are the CCP and you're sitting running show, you don't want to have a society that collapses upon you. That's Chinese history in thousands of years, you know. Uh, so obviously, that means that your whole objective is to keep stability. And that means you gotta, cannot be relying on the US or on anyone, really, for the key inputs for your economy, for your society to work. I've seen that over four decades. That was one of the things I took away from doing the report. Now, they still have a lot of fragility and issues, whether it's in the financial system or in some areas of technology and military is still very untested uh, in terms of beyond concept and ideas. Um, so 
if you start with that, that means that China was decoupling. They've already seen themselves as number one, the regional power in Asia. And that's been their objective in my book was to push into Eurasia, which you covered very well from a very early stage. Um, and then to work down in Southeast Asia and into, into the South China Sea and as far as they can get. And then for after that, you know, into Africa, into Latin America, um, they've had their own objectives. So Europe and the US has had other ideas and maybe they've been the kind of, We've been in a comfortable place with maybe some of the main benefactors from the globalization from the 90s upwards. Um, and we were focusing on consuming, on leisure, and hoping that this thing would never end. Um, but Asia is rising, the economy is starting to change. Our own economies, demographically, we got older, things slowed down in Europe. Um, in the US, they had this burst of innovation from the 90s upwards. Um, and then perhaps we've had maybe a couple of decades now, but certainly pronounced in 2008, which came out of the US financial system, um, you know, kind mm -hmm. of a searching for a new path, a new catalyst, um, which then leads to confrontation because suddenly you got an inherent uh, position of power being challenged inherently by Asia and China. Um, and I think that that is not going away. I think we are seeing through the current crisis has perhaps certainly put the spotlight on it, turned up the microphones on both sides, specifically at the extreme sides, as we have politics being played out in the U.S. in, in preparation for the elections. Uh, and, you know, uh, so I, I think we will see this escalate a bit more. But I actually think there's a longer term trend. I think the next decade from the 2020s up, uh, you will see China focusing on Asia and its project in Eurasia and just getting some of those big gaps in its own system in order. I think Europe and the US and the US specifically really needs to look at the system that we have built up. Um, we have all the ingredients to build uh, into another cycle of uh, innovation, productivity and, and growth. But we're going to have to do work and we're going to have to look in the mirror and say, look, you know, you're out of shape. you got to get back in the gym. There's things we have to get back to doing that are taking on difficult challenges as opposed to just trying to solve consumer apps and and these things we need to figure out how can we revitalize our societies in europe uh, even more so than the us because we kind of been maybe riding a bit on the uh, on the side of things focusing on on our own little place and we still have some big questions in terms of what is europe really what is the project and, and how can we be effective for our own populations and responsive to them while also taking a bigger role in the world Mm -hmm. You mentioned technology uh, several times, and right now we are also in the middle of the fourth industrial revolution. Looking back to our history, we know that it was the every time it was the winner of the industrial revolution, uh, the country that could ride the wave of it, that actually became afterwards an empire. This was the case with. Britain and later on it was also the case with the United States. So my question to you is, is there going to be a clear winner this time and does it have to be one sole winner of uh, the fourth industrial revolution or will it be this time a different outcome where like uh, we've outlined after a cycle of deglobalization probably there will be two centers of power, two regional projects, probably competing with each other, but not necessarily in a, in a direct conflict. Could you elaborate on this, please? 
Yeah, back to my initial point when we started out. I don't really the winner and loser thing. I think that's perhaps. I mean, I think it's Isaac Asimov who stated that in, in the game of chess you can be checkmate, but in the game of life things just go on, go on. So unless you have a complete implosion of one of these civilizations, it's always going to be there. So they may fall behind. You know, history is full of of these kind of one speeding up, the other slowing down. If you take the long kind of strokes of history, so I think that everyone is a winner from continuous innovation. If you look at you know just within my sort of let's say three generational shift to my grandparents to my life to my kids you know we've the life that we have is so vastly improved if you look at any measure of uh, you know our health our longevity of life uh, the quality of life you know we made huge progress on the back of these let's say there's maybe in the last couple of hundred years five major bursts of what you would call these technological revolutions which is something i cover in the latest report um so if you look at that i think everyone is a winner from this and obviously within that there's obviously industries that becomes more pronounced so you know we've gone from agricultural countries to manufacturing economies to service innovation based economy technology based economies and that really is the kind of ladder and if you're looking at um so let's say the us they've led this so the us in the last five major cycles maybe the first one was you know the uk great britain was uh, you know basically the drivers of that um and then the U.S. kind of took a lot of that stuff, put it on a much larger scale with a much nicer piece of real estate, which is the North American continent, and could really scale it up. And from then onwards, the next four of them has pretty much been led by the U.S. industry. Um, and certainly the last one, which has perhaps been one of the more pronounced uh, and very profitable, has been this technology shift into, you know, as I mentioned, from back of Second World War onwards with semiconductors, uh, telecommunications, internet, and then into our digital reality. There's real benefit of being the starter, the initiator of this, because you get to build out these industries first for your military purposes normally with a lot of R&D, but you're building out then a framework of educated people. You're building out systems that you can try and test with large budgets. And then after that, it will have applications into your society that can then be taken by private industry, ideally, and, and grown into other use cases. Um, and any nation, whether that's China, which is pronounced, but before them, South Korea, Japan, you know, they basically tried to mirror this thing, just like the U.S. tried to mirror probably what was going on in Europe. Um, you know, it is that uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, nothing is really made from quite complete beginning. It's about a constant evolution and improvement of it. Um, and again, obviously, if you if you control that process for your part of the world, um, then you get the, the most of the benefits. So then it's quite interesting to look at the... So this is where I want to maybe go a bit horizontal as opposed to traditional thinking, because when people talk about globalization they kind of tend to think oh you know either you know china has stolen all the manufacturing jobs and you know they're producing everything but if you turn it around and ask yourself what is china's coca-cola what is china's nike what products are you actually buying that chinese companies are producing and then selling and taking control of our markets with what china has become in in the real sense through this globalization period is quite aptly as they obviously are the middle kingdom they become the middle producer of just about anything so they have this stretched out supply chain where we've had the IP, the ideas, the novel innovation in, on the US West Coast. We've then had things produced in places like South Korea, Japan, gradually more and more into China. Um, and you mix all that together, you get fantastic technology products out the other side, which we then ship around to consumers around the world. That's basically been it. So who's been the real winners of that? Well, the profits have been accruing by large US tech companies and a few others around Japan, South Korea, maybe Israel, Europe. Um, China has obviously managed to um, to be a part of this and, and to kind of build out their industry gradually over four decades. 
um, and the consumer has had great products at much lower cost. And then you can look at on the kind of horizontal thinking of it, then you can say, okay, well, is the US the winner or US corporations the winner? And as many of the US corporations, let's say, have become very apt at financial engineering in the last couple of decades, which means that shareholders and, and those corporations have done very well, whereas perhaps you can look at the inequality question, which has perhaps brought up this whole sentiment around China stealing manufacturing jobs. You could say, <laughs> well, maybe perhaps there has been, you know, I think the U.S. has the high, by far the highest level of private wealth, over $106 trillion, for example. And most of that is created in the last four decades. So, you know, you could say, well, maybe there's some questions within that society that the inequality, maybe there should be more of a safety net. Maybe there should be some, maybe we swung a little bit the pendulum too far in one direction. Maybe the solutions are actually closer to home uh, than they are perhaps across the world. Again, this kind of winner-loser mentality. So that's maybe one way to come into it. Then I think going forward, well, you got to realize that, you know, China has built out significant levels of technology and the ability to manufacture. So again, when you talk about innovation, so a lot of it will be people think, you know, Silicon Valley, they think, you know, these great ideas, shooting up billion dollar valuations. Um, but there's another level to innovation and that is innovation in terms of process. And what I mean by that is the ability to manufacture. So just like if you have any small business, once you start trying to make something, you get better at making it. Then you sit and think about how can I do it better? And you keep refining, refining, refining. So whether you are like a carpenter making a chair or whether you are making BMWs, that essentially is the same process. But if you're not actually manufacturing anything, you never get to control and improve that process. And what I would say is that China has a real advantage in the innovation of the process of making things, which used to be, or still is Japan's, certainly in Germany's, for example, uh, what they basically have been managed to keep is this high level of manufacturing industry um, based around being able to make things uh, and continue to improve that process. But I think that that sets up going forward in terms of where I think not beyond this kind of noisy period we have right now is the scenario where what are the consumer that really you can target? So you can target the high-end consumer uh, in the West, in the US, for your, you know, five, six hundred dollar uh, Apple phones or whatever it is. But in most of the world, there's another group, which is a much larger group in number, and it's a faster growing group, which is basically emerging market middle class consumers of people coming to a slightly better stage of life. Now, they will not have the money to buy the five, six hundred dollar Apple iPhone. Um, but they will want to improve their lives. They may want to have an air conditioner. They may want to have a, you know, a scooter or a fridge or television or basic mobile phone and that's basically China's market because what China does there's a study I think it was a Harvard study where they have this quote which is um, or this um, it's called the 80-50 model and basically what he means by that is that you produce a product that has 80% of the capability quality and it's 50% of the price now that's a huge market and it's even not just the market emerging markets as we see it there's parts of Europe there's parts of, uh, of, of societies in the west which is also a buyer of those cars, of those products that are maybe not the newest, the smartest or the best, but you're getting close to it and you're getting it at half the price. That's very appealing. The only way that China can do that is because they can control the process of actually manufacturing because that's where you make the productivity and that's where you make the cost savings. So we've had for a while that you put those two things together. So the novel innovation with this process innovation, and then you have this beautiful machine. Now it looks like we're taking it in there's thoughts about taking that and breaking that into two, which leaves China in need of things like semiconductors, high-end ideas, developing novel innovation, which is new to them and still a challenge. 
And in the US, you have all this infrastructure. They used to be able to manufacture at very high levels. I mean, they still have high industry levels of things like in uh, defense, uh, obviously aerospace. Um, so there is the ability to make very high quality things, but maybe they will need to reinvent that or need to find other ways to kind of reconstruct what, what was a model for maybe two decades. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned several very interesting issues. You mentioned inequality. You also pointed to the emerging so-called middle class that we will witness in uh, continents like Asia or even in Africa we will face uh, growth of population which will be uh, capable of affording themselves more than they used to, at least larger masses, right? Then on the other side, in developed economies in North America and Europe, we are facing the opposite trend of shrinking middle classes, right? Uh, due to the fact that um, the global financial crisis of 2007-2008 led to severe consequences for this uh, political groups, if you like, because this was the strongest pillar, actually, of the political systems of uh, the last century, the way how we actually saw the political system emerging in North America and uh, Europe in the 20th century with social democratic uh, movements and forces, right, with the unions, with all of these uh, advantages that we know from the last decades, specifically from the last three decades, right? All of this was more or less affected following the great financial crisis. We are still coping with these um, repercussions. And now we are in a situation of unprecedented monetary and fiscal packages introduced by the very same governments to tackle once again what the too big to fail or will it be the too big to the too many to fail this time because you've pointed uh, out how important it is to actually strengthen the too many to fail right this this kind of social groups that are potential consumers in the next in the next decade so how do you see this how is it going to be another systemic crisis in the making because our decision makers probably will make the very same decision this time not so much uh, in favor of the big banks but probably large tech corporations what you've mentioned we have several groups of you know big corporations too big to fail corporations what's your take on that all right, so a lot of a lot of ground there. And uh, number one on the population, the emerging markets, Africa, very important uh, of note. I mean, as you pointed out, it's the youthful part of our of our demographics. It's fast growing, um, and it also is areas that have um, obviously challenges, uh, infrastructure, uh, systems, um, and you know, increasingly also from from the climate hazards. Uh, you know, again. Actually, I put in one of my reports. I found these two maps in, in some some readings I was doing. And if you take an overlapping of basically the areas of the world where you have the largest and fastest growing demographics, and you overlay it with maps of where you have the biggest dangers of climate-related uh, issues like drought or flooding, uh, it's pretty much just a match on top of each other. So that's big swaps of Africa, uh, it's India, it's the Indian subcontinent. Um, so you got all these young people 
at risk from basic stuff, food security, uh, fresh water, little infrastructure, little systems. And again, what is if you go back to what we just talked about in terms of the kind of financial model of how nations have evolved through this agrarian to manufacturing to kind of technology. So that's been basically the recipe to get your population to a better life, a better stage. Um, and obviously Asia has been doing this in China most pronounced in the last four decades. But if we if what we're talking about, and we can maybe go in a bit more about the automation and those aspects a little bit later on, but if what we're talking about is a regionalization, uh, more of a degree of automation, uh, more of, um, you know, you can ask yourself, is there a window still open for those big, big population groups to actually do those agrarian to manufacturing uh, to a service-based level that will allow them to rise out of poverty and for them to build something that is perhaps more sustainable and secure? That's a big question. Uh, and the answers don't seem to be too comforting uh, based on what I see. Um, then in terms of the inequality, I think there's a couple of aspects in that. So one, I would actually say that while there's been a lot of focus on the act the aspects of inequality, you know, I think that when you're climbing those different ladders, there's always going to be industries and groups of population that will be left behind. Because you're talking about major paradigm shifts. I think if you look at something like the U.S. move from agrarian to manufacturing, I think in a 30, like in 20 year period, around 35% of the population basically moved, you know, from one to the other and obviously leaving a lot behind between them that who may not have had the education, the ability to move. Um, so then it's back to what kind of system have you got? And that's obviously where Europe has you know, gone through these cycles as well um, and has built maybe a welfare system uh, that some would argue is maybe too much of a big edifice on their back that can't really be carried and supported by the economy unless there is a major burst of productivity uh, or some innovation. So I think to back to your bigger questions about how do we deal with this and where we are right now, I think the danger is that we continue with that mentality. What what we saw in 2008, you know, was moral hazard. We basically bailed out people who made mistakes. We bailed out companies that really should have been allowed to go bankrupt. Uh, people have this conception that bankruptcy means that you know it all disappears into the ground and everything is ruined. Bankruptcy of, an, of a corporation doesn't mean that. It normally means that whatever debt that was there before gets washed out, meaning shareholders and bondholders, uh, they get a lesson uh, in terms of how to allocate capital um, more prudently. Uh, the managers of that business, if they made major mistakes, they would normally be finding it very difficult to find a job uh, that, can re that can kind of remunerate them for their work. Um, so we, we lost out on that. I think the danger is that we continue that thinking, uh, not just uh, for legacy industries, whether that's the auto industry or the airlines or some of the other industries that perhaps, you know, are in need of major fundamental change in terms of that 4.0 move to a new kind of model. Um, if we bail those out, then we're just prolonging the inevitable. We have a lot of what we call zombie companies, which are companies that can't actually finance themselves um, and keep themselves flowing based on cash flow. If we're continuing those, what are we doing? We are wasting capital. We are mal as a society, we are mal investing. Okay, and that's never going to solve any issues for anyone. Okay, so let alone inequality. If we take it one step further and we go for MMT and we just give people money to do nothing, that is not really how humanity works either. Certainly not how we have that continuous evolution of productivity, of enhancement of life. That is not a driver for that. What we need to focus on is what actually works. What, how can we get back to planting new trees, new innovation trees that we can sit in the shade of and enjoy the fruit of? And how can we create better productivity? And how can we create this next steps on that ladder upwards? 
that's where we need to allocate the capital. So going back to the question about different regions and the coming out of two, out of the COVID-19 crisis, well, right now we are writing checks for trillions of dollars, trillions of euros, or yesterday Europe, 500 billion euros or whatever numbers you want to put on it. It's not so much the numbers. Um, it's really about, um, it's really about what do we do with the, um, what do we do with that capital? How do we actually, um, how do we allocate it? And I think the risk there is that we are going to malallocate it if we're not giving it to the uh, to the right places of the economy. That's actually going to make that's going to make a difference to us. Um, so that's kind of my that would be my concern on this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, obviously there is um, a trend um, um, pointing to a kind of a systemic uh, decoupling. You've mentioned about it between uh, US-led and China-led order or block or call it whatever you like. And now the question is uh, that's arising is about the free riders, the countries uh, that still have a saying in regional formats and configurations and they will have to position themselves. Now you've mentioned some countries, some very relevant actors in various regional formats and organizations. And my question to you is, how do you expect that uh, um, these so-called free riders uh, take uh, the key European countries, for instance, but take also Asian countries like Japan, like Australia, emerging India that have, if I'm not wrong, has now even uh, higher GDP than um, than UK, according to last numbers. But this was, of course, prior to COVID-19. So how are they going to position themselves? Obviously, there is a sort of a uh, polarization in the system, right? And obviously, yeah. we are also in the middle of uh, what I've called bilateralization of uh, global affairs. Uh, the um, very fresh example with Trump trying to settle, you know, relations with uh, countries in a bilateral manner, aside from multilateral institutions. Uh, very fresh example also with the withdrawal of the United States from the World Health Organization. So obviously a sort of uh, deglobalization when it comes to diplomacy and when it comes to international organizations. So my question to you is, do you see that there, this kind of polarization will affect the countries in between? Are they going to still remain US loyal um, allies and partners, but on the other side, hoping for going back to business with China? So very, very, very good example for Ger with, with Germany, where we just uh, read a few days ago that German managers are already hoping to revive relations, revive business with China uh, once the COVID-19 virus outbreak is, uh, is over. But then again, of course, uh, Germany is a NATO member and is uh, part of the transatlantic community. So just to give one example, what I exactly mean with countries in between trying to make business with the one country, but then again, somehow have to be loyal when it comes to security, defense interests, and so on and so forth. How do you see this? What is your global trends assessment on that? 
Well, so, I mean, I think it's already in play. I think it was in play perhaps before we even came into this. Um, I think it's not necessarily, I think maybe if you looked at it from the Asian perspective, specific, from China specific, a lot of the stuff was already underway, maybe last four or five years, at least a decade even. Um, I think obviously right now, the really interesting one is this US, China, and you know, no one really knows exactly where we're going to end up. We got elections in the US, we got internal issues in China. Uh, so there's obviously some playing to home audiences in terms of the communications. Um, and obviously there's some uncertainty in the US what, what direction is taken afterwards uh, this election this year. Uh, but I think for sure, as I said, the longer term trends are one where we have an inherent power being challenged that has had the global reach. I think my longer term thinking is that we see a more of a regional situation um, where the US may have a decade of, of solving things at home, um, but would still be extremely powerful, would still have big global companies, and would still have the only military that can project globally um, and you know has huge capital markets with its interlinking with the city of London um, and, and generally in terms of financial markets and, and raising capital for the world. So those things don't go away, they will be there. Um, I think in terms of how Asia operates and the supply chains out there, that will be the interesting one. Um, I think the countries you mentioned, I think is really interesting, a place like Australia, for example, um, you know, South Korea, um, Japan, obviously, uh, Israel, some of these places, the whole Middle East, if you want. Um, what has been is definitely not there anymore. The US steps back from its security role in some of these places, which is happening in the Middle East. You have huge question marks about what is actually the path ahead from those places, which could lead to a lot of chaos. And there's still a lot of energy there and obviously a lot of, of people and population growth. Um, if you look at places like Australia or New Zealand, um, or even the UK, you know, there's choices to be made. Um, you know, one is, your cultural affinity, your systematic uh, approach to how to run a society is more obviously very much aligned with the US and uh, same for Europe. Um, but your bread is buttered in Asia. The future, the, all the growth, global growth in terms of uh, potential is out there. The US is not an easy market to penetrate as a non-US company, generally speaking, um, in terms of products and accessing that wonderful consumer group that everyone kind of talks about. Um, so that means that maybe the battle is not really going to be fought in the US, but elsewhere. And as I talked about, I think China has you know, a great position for that. It's also become modestly wealthy and they have a huge population base. So if you're a German manufacturer, you know, even for the US guys, so it's interesting, like, look, let's look at US corporations, because it's easy to talk about um, just the countries. But again, for US corporations, the truth is that number one, they've invested billions of dollars in manufacturing plants and, and systems in infrastructure in China, for example, they also have a huge market there. So something like Boeing, they get something like 13.6% of their last year, their revenues were from Chinese sales of airplanes. If you look at South Korea and Taiwan, for example, um, it's the two countries right in the middle of all of this. Well, they are basically technology-based economies. That's where all their people are employed. That's what they build out as a system. 50% of their earnings as a, of GDP for tech exports comes from dealing with China as part of that middle kingdom, middle production being a part of that chain. So if you suddenly just step away from that, okay, and there's a lot of focus on, on TMSC in, in the semiconductor space in Taiwan. I mean, they are also 14, 15% of their revenues come from selling into China. They have huge plants in China. So, you know, people are talking about this huge shift. I don't think you can do that shift without really causing huge damage to some of the biggest corporations in the world and, and obviously all the people they employ. Uh, and their investors. So that's a powerful constituency. So when people talk about this huge shift, I don't think it will happen as fast. I think there's some reality that is not so easily moved. And the other question then comes to, which is maybe an interesting risk opportunity one, which is what if we were to move from this manufacturing model 
where are we going to move it to? So people talk about moving it to Vietnam or India or something like Bangladesh. It's just something you do. You you know you you change your address on your website and off you go. It doesn't really work like that. China spent four decades of building infrastructure, harbor, roads, rail. This is billions and billions of dollars and making a system that they can be relied upon. Uh, anyone who's done business in India or some other place will tell you, even anyone from India will tell you that, you know, getting from A to B can be complicated. Having enough electricity on, as the system is right now can be an issue. So that shift is not so easy to do. So maybe the bigger question, which is what I'm hoping to see out of this crisis a little bit, is that we go to something that is more of a regional model, more sustainable, and we try and look at that 4.0 of industry and try and think about how can we automate in a smart way and that allows us to produce closer to home, uh, that maybe allows us to think a bit about how we manufacture, um, how we, what the materials we use, and become more um, more resilient in terms of our systems. That doesn't mean necessarily you have to completely decouple and you know you have this kind of Cold War scenario. It just means that maybe you have two or three regions um, or spheres of influence where you're kind of self-contained for certain things, but maybe capital, ideas, people still flow across on a global level. Mm -hmm. Um, I've received meanwhile two questions on Twitter, so I will ask them first. Yeah. Uh, and if we have uh, some time, I will ask uh, uh, a final question uh, from my side. So the one question refers to UK uh, following Brexit. What's your take on that? Uh, are we going to face a situation in which uh, UK will be uh, basically tr will be trying to balance both uh, United States and China? And uh, there is a reference to the financial hub, specifically the trading of uh, Chinese yuan and yeah. so on and so forth. And a uh, second question is uh, related to, to what you've mentioned about uh, US uh, market, uh, which is not easy, uh, easily penetrated, so they basically uh, the access to the US market. So the question refers to the Chinese market. Is your expectation that Chinese market will become more open uh, following COVID-19 because of the economic repercussions or is it more uh, is it going to be more about um, inwards uh, oriented economy towards uh, consumption um, coming from the Chinese consumers? So UK Brexit um, is an interesting one. So again, it's one of those uh, UK is a great example of a situation where thinking uh, vertically about it in this kind of silo maybe doesn't give you the best view i think it's really about the horizontal uk is obviously used to be the british empire so it's hugely connected around the world it has a footprint that maybe is not seen if you just look at the size of its economy um you know and then within the uk uh, it's interesting the fact that you have the city of london in itself which is a hugely financial i mean for five six hundred years literally has been the operational system of the global flow of capital um, and it, even with the us and new york obviously in the last hundred years coming into primacy it is still a very much a big powerful node in that that system so the city of london will be just fine i'm pretty sure <laughs> they have been for a long time um, and they will be a part of, of global investment global business um, I, I see no doubt about that that then obviously you have this, then london around it which is a huge part of the uk economy the most significant part got everything else. So when you talk about is the UK going to be okay? I think the city of London is going to do great. I think London will do well. Um, I think you're going to raise big questions about the so it's like Scotland because it is in it is a union at the end of the day, just like people talk about the breaking of the European Union potentially. The the 
the the uh, British Union is also up for, for question because you're going to see, okay, what is the future of these things? If the UK want to be a global hub and they want to really push out the man the uh, the financial thing of it, that's going to put more and more uh, tipping towards the city of London, towards London, the urban centres, and while it's hard to see how the rest of it has much benefit from this, uh, specifically if they can't be kind of interconnected with Europe, which is much closer by, and they're having to compete with China for manufacturing, if they're going to compete with India in software and in maybe in some of those areas. I'm not really sure that's a real win formula for large parts of the population and some big parts of the, the country. Um, so you have some questions around that. And I think obviously you've got some really practical questions around Northern Ireland, which is perhaps a bit of a, you know, back, you know, I think you can talk about the Middle East or you can talk about little notes like that. You know, we drew some lines in the sands on all these maps, but, you know, a lot of it doesn't necessarily make sense for the reality we are in now. And there's some questions about how is the functionality of Northern Ireland going to work with Ireland being in the European Union and being quite a prosperous country. Um, so, you know, that would be my thing on that. In terms of their links with China, um, sure. They right now is the major hub outside of Hong Kong, which I consider to be part of China, not to step on anyone's toes there, but in reality, it is within a system that is on a path where unless there's a major change in China, you know, they'll be more and more integrated into the Chinese system where they have been kind of a financial hub sitting alongside, um, but I don't think they'll be allowed to be so. So in, in real terms, the biggest hub for Chinese capital flows is the city of London, uh, whether that's the Yuan or just generally companies coming to raise capital. I think this would be even more strengthened because the U.S. is now making moves to kind of limit capital flows from the U.S. or using their financial hubs to kind of be a conduit for Chinese capital raises, for example. So I think that plays into it. So it's kind of a two-step a two answer is that I think from a financial perspective, they're going to do great. Um, I think bigger picture may be more complicated than than, than, than it maybe should be. For, for them, it make, doesn't make a lot of sense for a lot of part of the country not to be a part of the European system. And we still don't know exactly what the terms of trade are going to be. Um, so that would be the UK. Um, what was the other one? It was about US markets and Chinese markets. Um, so, yeah, so I think there's a high, um, it's, you know, coming into the US, uh, it's certainly difficult. I don't see the Chinese companies being able to obviously get into it, but I don't really see many others, whether that's Europe. Um, so that basically means that if I was sitting on the board of directors of some European company, I would obviously want to be able to sell my high-end luxury cars, etc., in, in the U.S. market. But again, you're talking about a limited market that is maybe a bit saturated um, and a market where there will probably be more obstacles than, than you would want. So maybe you go and manufacture there. Maybe you try and, and build basically a U.S. business uh, out of as a wing of your business. I think, in fact, that will be the trend. So what you might see is that you will have a Chinese part of company X and North American part of company X, maybe down in Mexico or maybe in the southern states of the US, and you have a European part of it. And obviously you can, you know, IP and capital and talent can flow somewhat between them. Um, but if you're a global corporation right now, that is probably the only real conclusion you can come to is that you're going to need to be part of Asia, which means you're going to have to go out in that framework and that doesn't can't really be looked upon without China being part of it as it is currently. And you want to be in North America. Um, and again, there you can have to work on their terms. And I'm pretty sure when you come into China, you're going to have to work on their terms. Um, but I think China will open up in certain areas. They want, certainly with Europe, you know, there's this thinking of um, this Eurasian entity where you have basically on one coast a huge manufacturing civilization. On the other coast, you have a smaller but also very powerful manufacturing and wealthy population or civilization, which is Europe. And then right down the middle, you got this big empty spaces with um, food, agriculture, um, energy, 
and that both of those hops kind of require. And then you can sort of say, will it be from the European side that is going to be a push through and that'll be a framework of how to organize a society and the system on, on a European sort of standard way of thinking? Or will it be a Chinese uh, model of systems that will be pushing through and, and will have uh, more and more power closer and closer into the Atlantic? Uh, or will it be somewhere where there's a mix between the two? Um, I think, again, it'll probably be a gradual thing, but really too early to say uh, whether there's anyone coming out on top of that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Eurasian landmass, uh, and one thing that comes to my mind is that, uh, interestingly, during the COVID-19 uh, crisis, um, the train connectivity between China through Russia and also connecting Europe uh, hasn't been interrupted. I mean, goods, for instance, transport of goods, particularly because the maritime routes were under stress, right? So because of the quarantine and because of disruption of supply chains. But this kind of train connectivity has been functioning. And it's obviously one way how China is trying to create alternative connectivity in case there is a blockade on the maritime routes, right? So what's your take, actually? Do you see uh, Dragon Bear uh, in the making, uh, sort of uh, Russia-China, I don't call it alliance, I call it a kind of a systemic coordination between the both countries out of uh, pure geopolitical and geoeconomic interest rather than uh, based on shared values or norms and rules. What's your take so on that? Um, you know, from my work on China last time was really very much that, you know, I think there's a lot, you know, I think, you know, again, not to get like overly Chinese strategically, uh, you know, thousand year vision thinking, but there is a saying, which I believe there is a coherent pattern that shows that this has been their strategy for four decades, which is one where they're not going to push into where they're weak, which would be going into the ocean and face the US Navy. That's like a non-starter. So while they've been making a lot of noise in the South China Sea, I think it's maybe a bit of theater. And what has actually been much more quiet has been their move into Eurasia. So you talk about rail that doesn't just appear overnight. That's like systems that has to be built. That's a lot of very complicated nations to deal with historically when you go into that Eurasian heartland and to be able to negotiate for goods and trade to go through in a safe manner. But all of this system has been put in place probably over two or three decades. Then you mentioned the Russia-China relationship. That's another one which is very complicated and complex. But I think there's two things that you can take away from those two powers looking at them historically. It's number one, they don't do no one many favors, okay? And they know their interests and they are not paranoid, but they certainly come into these relationships open with open eyes, let's put it that way. Um, but there's a lot of things that ties them together. And I think some of the US policy and some of the European non-policy, if you like, has actually given them a catalyst or an embrace, you know, almost forced them to embrace um, beyond maybe what they would have been comfortable with uh, on that kind of timeline that we've seen. And I think that's only being strengthened by what we're seeing right now um, because, um, you know, they make a lot of sense together in, in just purely those terms. Um, and I think in terms of the, um, the steps forward from them, yeah, I think they will continue to, they'll, you know, it's not a straight route. There'll be two steps forward and one step backwards. And, you know, there's obviously some eats or pride nations that have some things and it's not all straightforward. But I think there's one, actually, I think there's one of your colleagues, I forget his name, who put out a report and he was talking about, 
the China, the Russia, and whether Europe, there was talk, I think it was like a year back, uh, whether Europe could make inroads. There was some approachment from Macron into, into Russia, for example, and the US, maybe some back channels have been played. But he pointed out, and I think it's right, there's an inherent difference because for Chinese uh, leadership, the elite, or for the Russian leadership and elite, okay, our model is an inherent threat to them. So they can never truly embrace so it's not about the population of China, the population of Russia. They may want to have more of a European or US-style uh, governance system that is, remains to be seen. But in terms of the people who are running the show, for them to say, okay, let's be part of the European Union would probably mean pretty much the end of that cycle of power in Russia, for example. So it's never really going to be able to happen, I think. Whereas with China and Russia, they know what they both are and what they aren't but they what they have in common is that they both have governance models that are circled around a small group of, of individuals and people or different kind of constituencies um and they they want to maintain that stability and that power and that's what they have in common and that is really difficult to overcome from the europe or from the us whether you go to one or the other because by opening themselves up to us they will also be opening up to our systems and our governance. And that is a risk for those very elite who are actually there to make that decision. So I think it, maybe that's a non-starter. So I think they will continue to balance off each other. Um, again, financially, economically, it makes a lot of sense. And certainly, unless there's some major changes in how we approach either of the two from the West, um, you know, I don't think there's any kind of easy path to that. I think to, to the last one there, which I think is more important, and this is one of the things I think is a bit missed in the sort of geopolitical dialogue where people talk about this Indo-Pacific alignment for the US. The biggest and most low-hanging fruit in any strategic move is in fact one which I, I basically think is the US's biggest foreign policy success, which is the European Union and Europe as a collective that doesn't fight uh, wars every 10 years with each other or the rest of the world, okay? So right now we are in a place where we seem to be separating I actually think that what needs to happen if you're pragmatic about it and what would be very powerful is an alignment of the European, Western European community uh, and the North American project, if you want, which obviously includes Canada and the US, Mexico. That is a that is the side that is some much lower hanging fruit, something much more tangible, and something that would at least create a zone where you have cultural alignment in some way and where there might be some some wins by taking best practices from different places and putting it together trying to attach yourself to some like something like india is a huge project it would be like the cherry on the top of the cake but i have concerns that that is kind of a, a false image where people think oh yeah on the map it looks great we are on the other side it's a traditional competitor to china it would keep them on their toes but the reality of india is maybe not as as easy as that um, this Indian subcontinent in my book is a, is a very volatile place with some inherent issues uh, that have to be overcome. And unless you're willing to sink billions and billions of dollars into that um, and perhaps even having to put uh, US military or European military in in some of those situations around, let's say, Pakistan or Afghanistan, which we're trying to get out of. So uh, that would be like uh, some considerations. It's interesting that you mentioned India because um, uh, two questions came from the chat room and uh, one is actually related to India and it uh, is also very much linked to what you've just said because the question goes, what should India do to make sure foreigners place trust here and shift supply chains? And may I ask also the second question because I think it's also a very interesting one how well do you think our global central banks prepared to tackle 
the post-COVID macro. Okay. Um, so India kind of covered a little bit. They actually did a deep dive on it a while back because I was kind of fascinated by the place. Um, I came out kind of feeling it's a bit of a flawed uh, diamond, if you want, in the sense that it looks great. Um, but when you start digging into some of the fundamentals, whether that's education or whether that's infrastructure or just water is a huge issue, um, food security, and then the geographics are just hard you know you have uh, it's a very it's not a, a unified uh, entity in many ways and a lot of it is kind of a british empire uh, left over where we kind of uh, there was kind of forced upon them that there was this nation and then we had the breaking of pakistan and bangladesh but you know it's not uh, as easy i think in terms of what india does have is a great relatively large chunk of population that is very well educated um i think they already very forceful in things like software being part of that supply chains of software uh, outsourcing of services um you know so i think that there's great great potential there um even a place like bangladesh has really done great in the last decades against very difficult geography for example so that tells you a little bit about the coherence of that uh, system i think in terms of this competing with china i think maybe in some ways that's a mistake from them a little bit i think them they're probably the reality is that a lot of the investment into india that is actually creating jobs and, and building out infrastructure is chinese money coming through uh, which is maybe not mentioned so much um so i think they also made it a little bit complementary because india doesn't really have have the infrastructure or the maybe the tradition of large-scale high-end manufacturing of technology products but they kind of have maybe the software and there's again an, an explorer of indians living in the us and europe very highly educated and many of them you know behind some of the most successful startups so i think again india is probably going to try and have to play um both camps but in a more productive way than maybe has been its history in the past where it's kind of been non-aligned playing with the soviet union you know using the us here and then drawing maybe on some colonial contacts i think it really is about a fresh approach to it um I, i'm watching their politics a little bit at the moment i would have some concerns about some of the things we're seeing in that where we're seeing uh, you know this kind of populism uh, focusing on on the kind of majority of the population but india is a country of of some very vast um, minorities um, and if you try to exclude them from this this growth story or this new project and then you will have conflict internally that would never allow you to to maybe fulfill your goals um mm -hmm. on the what was the last okay. one was Oh, central, central banks. banks. No. <laughs> All right, my favorites. Um, so sure. So uh, no, they were not prepared because you know we've had a decade of upwards, relatively good economies, and we have raised interest rate. Uh, you know not of any way of mentioning. So we have very little tools left. I think they've gone all in on this. Uh, based on very little real data and they love data and they like to make models of reality that maybe is never really you don't have the ability to model because it's much more complex and then make very big decisions on the back of it so my concern with the central banks which also goes into fiscal because it also goes into governance um, my concern is that we are going to basically become more and more indebted on the back of this um, we're going to find ourselves not allocating that capital efficiently um, and we're going to also create a kind of a monster out of the system in the sense that we we become what we need to do is the opposite of what is happening right now I understand that right now we're kind of giving ourselves a bridge loan which is supposed to take us to the other side to something ideally better um, but we got to make sure that that is actually what happens so we're not building a bridge to nowhere um, and ruining our currencies and our financial markets and our economies in the same process and also creating inequality and creating a framework of blame as opposed to maybe a more saying let's 
let's let's get over this. Let's find out what's happening now. The next couple of quarters are going to be pretty ugly. Um, but um, on the other side, there needs to be something. And if we are building out things, so that's about challenging industry. It's about taking some of those big challenges on, whether that's our energy transition, uh, whether that's how to get that next layer of innovation and productivity, because productivity has been declining uh, across our economies. Um, you know, how do we how do we continue to grow and increase uh, our quality of life with an aging demographic in the West, for example? If you are in emerging markets, how do I manage to harness all these young uh, demographics that I have into something constructive so I don't end up with uh, conflict and riots? Um, these are the big difficult questions and sure central banks will have some role to play, but what is much more important is that we get back to a system based on merit of ideas and people. And I think in the West, we kind of got away from that a bit, and I think that's my concern. Mm -hmm. So, my final question to you for today is what, in your view, might be possible triggers for a next financial and economic crisis? Well, I think they're right in front of us right now. So, again, a misallocation of all this capital would be number one. Um, I think... Um, that would be my major concern. My major concern is that we are bailing out companies and industries that have no future uh, instead of facing the hard problems and trying to construct something better and putting the capital into that, uh, that we would be trying and kind of prolong what we have uh, in areas where it's just really not the answer. Um, and then I think within that, there is a question then that comes down to which I think is one of the biggest um, mistakes of the 2008 was that we, we never really had... Um, closure on it what was the issues who was to blame in various areas not so much the individuals but parts of the systems um and that has kind of led this lingering feeling which we've seen in our politics that things are unfair and things are not just and everyone feels like they're losing when perhaps in the long long sort of longevity of time we have really high level of quality of life we have you know all a lot of good stuff so there's a feeling like we want to tear everything down um, and that the system is wrong or skewed against this. And that can become, a, there's some truth in that. And what happened in 2008 and wasn't addressed was many of it, but much of it was true, but also a lot of it was exaggerated. And then there's this victimhood uh, way of approaching life, which I don't think is not what humanity is. It's not what has brought us here today. Um, you know, my grandparents came out of, you know, the Depression, Second World War, you know, they raised seven, eight kids in a house with, uh, you know, one or two bedrooms and no, no electricity in the beginning, no running water, um, put those kids through schools and, you know, went through all these, you know, real hardship, you know, and I'm kind of thinking, I talk to my kids about that because I think the, their reality is so removed from just Western European experience, which is perhaps one of the more comfortable paths of life that has been in the last hundred years. Um, but in that space of time, we had great achievements. The system has done very well by us. Sure, there's a lot of issues and there's definitely a need for renewal, um, but I'm not of the opinion that we basically the states where they have to tear the whole thing down and start all over again. Uh, my concern a little bit is that we're starting to see that rhetoric in the political space, uh, whereas I do see that in the my interaction with people in, let's say, the military space or the business community, uh, let's forget the financial community, they have their own agendas normally, but, and I speak as one there, but um, um, I see a much more constructive approach to it where people are saying, yes, there must be changes, but it's a lot less about individuals who's going to solve everything, which is normally a fallacy. Uh, it's more about systems and how can we adjust, how can we fine tune, and how can we accept that there has been errors made and how can we learn from them? 
that would be a kind of my approach to it. Well, thank you very, very much for patiently answering all my questions and also responding to the questions from the audience. Uh, thank you to our listeners and to those who are watching uh, us uh, in the live stream. Uh, thank you for staying with us for more than 70 minutes. Uh, so for those of you who are interested in the research and in the work of Sune Sorensen, once again, he's the founder of Librarium Associates. Go to the webpage librariuminsights.com or if you like, as he's also advisory board member of the BFI Capital Group, go to the webpage of the bficapital.com. Sune, thank you very, very much for this insightful talk and I wish you uh, best of luck for all your undertakings. Thank you very much and thank you for everyone for their time. And, uh, you know, I hope to come and see you in Vienna and, uh, and learn more about your institute there as well. Uh, it's been on my agenda for a while and then everything shut down. So um, thank you very much. Thank you, Sone. You're